on Thursdays. Michael Leibowitz always uh, comes and hangs out here at the show for a while to talk a little bit about what's going on with Fed and, you know, of course, the big major things are coming up here very shortly. Um, of course, the Jackson Hole Summit was is an interesting situation right now because, again, they were going to have this big confab in Jackson Hole, right? So this, so Jackson Hole, Wyoming, beautiful place if you've ever been there. And every year they have a central gathering of all the central bankers who all fly under their private jets to discuss how they're going to affect climate change. Uh, they all get there uh, to talk about monetary policy on a global scale, right? So everybody's going to talk about, you know, how they're going to, you know, handle their central bank interventions. Basically, it's it's pinky in the brain, and they all get there to discuss how they're going to take over the world. And they've done a very successful job of this over the course of the last decade. Um the interesting thing was, is as they were getting ready to go have this big confab, this Delta variant, you know, kind of showed up, ruined the party. So now it's going to be all virtual, right? Everybody's staying home and they're going to all do this as a virtual event and talk about their outlook for monetary policy. So, you know, one of the things that we've heard a lot, and Mike and I have talked about this over the last few weeks is that there was a rising number of voices from the Federal Reserve, not Jerome Powell, but the but the the but you know the pinkies, right? Not the brain, the pinkies. Um, <laughs> talking about that, well, we may need to taper because we're starting to reach full employment and we're starting to see, you know, rates of you know inflation picking up. Here's the question for Michael Leibowitz while we brought him on the show this morning. Has the Delta variant potentially changed that? Do you think maybe now potentially that instead of uh, you know maybe talking about tapering at this uh, Jackson Hole summit, maybe they kind of punt for a, a month or so to see what happens with the Delta variant? It's a tough, that's a tough question to answer, right? Because the Delta variant really isn't affecting the economy all that much. But the Fed excuse. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I learned, Lance, that was interesting is the reason the Fed went to a virtual conference was not their own decision. That was put upon them by the lodge wherever they were having this conference. Really? So the Fed did not decide to do this virtually. It was put upon them. So, so but the market. That's interesting because, you know, the lodge is probably charging, you know, four times the normal rate for since it's all central bankers. Right. Right. It seemed to me that they'd be the last ones wanting to say, ah, well, why don't y'all not come? <laughs> it's probably a national or state park at a minimum. Yeah. And they're probably under federal guidelines would be my guess. Probably. But either way, the market had a decent rally on Monday. And we all know that whatever the, the media says was the cause of the rally is not necessarily the cause. It's just narrative. But the narrative for the rally on Monday and Tuesday was, well, it went virtual so the Fed must be very concerned that Delta is wrecking the economy. Mm -hmm. So so Lance this morning, and you probably don't know this because I think it just got announced, the Bank of Korea did two things. Well, they did one thing and Korea did one thing. Okay. The Bank of, of Korea raised interest rates by 25 basis points and Korea raised their COVID uh, level you know, how much people can do. They made it the maximum now. You know, you can't do anything in South Korea. So so they raised their COVID alert and raised interest rates. There's something novel for the Fed. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, 
So I don't know. I think COVID, what COVID really does is, or the Delta variant really does, is give the Fed an excuse. If Powell wants to start tapering September, he can say something like that. And if he wants to wait for a little bit more information, because they don't have enough already, uh, he can say something like that. But at the end of the day, I think what they're going to tell us is that tapering will be starting shortly, whether, again, that's September, November, December. I don't know. And I'm not sure it really matters because the market is concerned about tapering because they're taking liquidity out of the market. Right. That's what tapering will do. So and, and again, timing, course, I course, guess, matters, but taper well, is going to happen. Right. And I, I, but, you know, the thing is, is that also, too, I mean, immediately just, you know, just to be so where we have everybody on the same page. Here's how the media, the financial media and Wall Street will respond to any announcement. Um, I saw a really great chart today, um, and, and actually I posted it on Twitter. So Cornerstone Macro put out this chart of the S&P 500 and said, look, every time the Fed starts raising rates, the markets go up. And that's true, right? Uh, so in the very early stages when the Fed's hiking rates, then, you know, technically, you know, the economy's getting stronger, blah, blah, blah. Uh, supposedly. And so we're generally right in the, the mania phase of the market. Of course, what Cornerstone Macro forgot to mention was that shortly after they started hiking rates, you had the crash in 2000, 2008, 2020. So, you know, <laughs> they tend to forget about what happens after. It's like, yeah. And so we're going to get this kind of analysis coming out from all corners of the financial media saying, ah, well, you know, the Fed said they're going to taper. But, you know, when they start tapering, you know, there's another nine, 10 months, you know, before the market actually, you know, realizes it. And and so, you know, the, the pitch is going to be, yeah, they're going to taper, but markets are going to keep going up. Well, yeah, they will, because even when they're tapering, they go from $120 billion a month to $110 billion a month to $100 billion a month. There's still a lot of liquidity coming into the market. So it doesn't mean that the markets are going to – I just want to be clear with everybody. It doesn't mean that if the Fed announces taper tomorrow that the markets are going to crash, but – there's a risk of that. Um, there's a risk because we haven't had a correction of any sort, uh, of any magnitude, 5%, 10%, 20% in, in such a long time now, that there is a risk that a unexpected announcement, maybe a more aggressive taper action or um, maybe an, a, a taper announcement plus discussion of potential rate hikes and moving up into 2022 from 2023 – Maybe that kind of spooks a very illiquid market. Maybe that does create a, at least a short-term correction that people aren't uh, kind of people aren't betting on. Because as we said before, it's like nobody's expecting anything right now. Right, and one of the things that you just mentioned was that in the past, rate hikes eventually spooked the market. Mm -hmm. Well, QE is sort of the new interest rate. Right, rates are so low now that they can't. They do adjust interest rates on the margin, but they, they started so low before COVID, they brought them down a little. QE is really is really interest rates at this point. So when we talk about raising interest rates, it's much more tapering or slowing down their QE purchases and how quickly they do it and when they finish. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, it can be interpreted. Whatever they're going to say, can, it will be interpreted many different ways. They're not going to tell you. Uh, you know, almost almost one thing we know for certain is they're not going to say we're going to reduce QE by X amount every month and we're going to start in October and we're going to end in March. 
they're not going to give you a timeline, a, a definitive timeline. The, again, we're looking for clues, for hints, how aggressive or non-aggressive is Powell. We know that many of his pinkies are want to be very aggressive, right? right? They, they would like to start in September. They've seen enough, right? They know the employment uh, situation is improving and they're comfortable that it that it is pretty much normal now. And if people would just take the jobs that are available, we'd be much closer to normal. Right. And that has that's much more of a fiscal, uh, you know, a, a, poli- a fiscal policy part of the problem. Right. Mm-hmm. That we also know that inflation is raging. Right. Whether it's transitory or not. We don't know. I mean, we, we all have our assumptions. Mm-hmm. Right. We can make a case and we do every day that it's transitory and we agree with the Fed. But there's plenty of reasons to think it may not be transitory. And the Fed has to be very careful because inflation is what kills them. If we get real inflation, the Fed has to raise rates regardless of what markets are doing. And that's that to me is the true recipe for disaster. Not sure we're going to see it this go around, Mm -hmm. but inflation kills the golden goose, so to speak. Well, and again, you know, this is always, again, kind of going back to what I said, you know, earlier, which is that it's always that unexpected exogenous event, right? And and nobody's expecting a rate hike anytime soon. And again, if, if the Fed comes out and says, hey, you know, this, you know, we're seeing inflation above levels that we'd like to see it at, um, and they do start talking about moving rate hikes up earlier, that's that's the risk to, to the markets. Because again, that's just that that's one of those events that the market's not anticipating is a more aggressive or a more hawkish Fed than what they've been used to over the last few years. And, and again, you know, we talk about inflation being transitory, and it's true, some of the inflation is transitory. Autos, you know, autos in particular, auto prices, um, but rent's coming up very sharply now. Um, that's going to be a problem for the Fed because it's such a big component of the inflation calculation. But some of these other uh, calc- parts of the, of the inflation equation are more sticky, you know, gas prices, food prices, those things don't tend to revert very quickly. And I know we, and, and the problem with the calculation and even with the Fed is that we exclude those sticky things, right? So we exclude food and gas when we look at an inflation. But those are things that really kind of impact consumers longer term because, again, they, you know, wages aren't keeping up with the cost of living. They're having to go more and more into debt every month. We see that with the credit card data. And, you know, and it's just a function. They're not buying more stuff. They're just trying to buy the same amount of stuff at a higher price. Right. Right. And I think this leads and maybe we should kind of lead off the next discussion. Biden's approval ratings are falling quickly mm-hmm. and that's falling in line with consumer confidence. So the question is, where how is he putting pressure on the Fed? What can the Fed do about that? Because I think that's another thing another factor that could really that the market's not thinking about that could be a big deal well and it's actually true in this morning i posted a chart on twitter we'll talk about what that chart was when we come back from the break and why the democrats are in such a rush right now to pass another five trillion in spending it all makes perfect sense and we'll talk about it right after the break with michael leibowitz don't go away Welcome back to the show this morning. As we're talking about the Fed and tapering, Esther George, who is the Kansas City Fed president, talking right now on CNBC, saying that because of supply constraints and what's going on there, which could put upper pressure on inflation, that uh, 
the Fed should be thinking about tapering sooner rather than later. So again, this is just kind of another one of the voices. Uh, she's also um, kind of looking at the end of 2022 as a reasonable outlook for rate hikes. So that's moving the Fed rate hike forward from 2023 now into the latter part of 2022. So again, we're start again, this goes back to our conversation, right? We're seeing more and more of these Fed presidents kind of talk about the potential for tapering and for rate hikes and this type of thing. But you know, markets are ignoring all that at the moment. Again, kind of the, the it's it's kind of like I'm hoping they don't actually do that. I know they're talking about it, but I'm hoping they don't actually do it because I certainly like the 120 billion dollars a month. Um, the other thing that the the markets are kind of banking on is another five trillion dollars worth of spending, and this is interesting because I post as I said just for the break, and this goes along with you know a, approval ratings as well. But I posted a chart out this morning looking at the betting odds of control of House and Senate coming uh, next year. Because in 2022, we've got a lot of big things that are going on. So potential for rate hikes. We also have the midterm election cycle, which will determine control of the House and the Senate. And it's been interesting. Nancy Pelosi uh, made a comment just yesterday saying that we've got to take advantage of the majority of the House majority and the Senate majority to pass this, you know, this spending bill, which will reform and remake America going forward. Because, and she's right, if you do massive changes to the welfare state, those things are very hard to repeal. So once, once you start expanding Medicare, Medicaid, things we can't, you know, which already are running a $150 trillion deficit, um, when you start expanding that even more, you can't take it away. So, She's right. And the reason for the rush is if you look at the betting odds right now of control of House and Senate, the Republicans are set to take back control of House and Senate next year. And that's not really surprising. Um, that's probably going to occur. We're starting to see a, a, even more moderate Democrats move towards the right a bit because, again, <laughs> the the more progressive policies aren't setting well with a large number of even moderate Democrats. And we're even seeing that currently in the House right now, nine Democrats starting to push back against, you know, this current spending bill. So that combined with, uh, you know, not great approval ratings certainly puts Democrats at at risk um, going into next year and going into the, to the midterm elections. But, you know, your question, I think it's a good point, is can the president put, you know, some pressure on the Fed to try to lift asset markets even further, boost consumer confidence, which if people feel better about markets and, and the economy, then that typically tends to get attributed to the president who's in charge at the time. Right. I mean, I, consumer confidence fell off a cliff last week, and it's now below where it was a year ago mm -hmm. when COVID was raging. Right. And we didn't know what it was. There was no vaccine. Right. Right. <clears throat> um so why is consumer confidence falling so quickly? And there's kind of two big factors that come to mind. One is the Delta variant and people are unsure of what it means, how it's going to affect us. Are we going to have to go back to some of the lockdowns? Those kind of questions. And there's not much. There's not anything the Fed can do about that. Right. right? The second one, though, is inflation. And we know that from consumer confidence, that inflation is really weighing on people. Mm -hmm. it, you know, and you go and, to store, and, and, and probably more so than Delta. I mean, really, it's when you when you when you can't make your ends meet and you can't buy groceries, things like that, 
that tends to weigh on your confidence a bit more. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Right. So it's inflation. And the Fed, we can argue all day how much the Fed really affects inflation. But at the end of the day, the Fed can be perceived as to creating inflation or trying to stop inflation. Right. Mm -hmm. So you, now let's put ourselves in Jerome Powell's shoes. He's up for nomination for renomination. And that should occur sometime. Typically occurs October ish, November ish. And I believe his term ends February. Right. Right. So he knows that President Biden has a decision to make over the next couple months. So what do you do if you're Jerome Powell and your number one goal is to get renominated? And unfortunately, I think that is his number one goal is to be renominated. <laughs> so it's, it's not what's best, because if it was what's best, things would be very different right now. Right. So it's to be renominated. And if you want to get into Biden's good graces, you have to show that you're taking inflation seriously. And that means that taper soon. Mm -hmm. The problem that he then has is if he comes out tomorrow and says, we're going to start tapering September and we're going to go at it and we're going to be done. We're going to be done tapering by January. Right. That would be more aggressive than anyone thinks. Night, night stock market <laughs> and night, night Biden's <laughs> hopes of holding on to the House or Senate. Right. So, so this is the conundrum that Jerome Powell is in now. So, you know, you talked about Esther George. Bullard is going to speak in about an hour. Mm -hmm. He's going to be even more hawkish than her. Right. He's going to say they should finish next Tuesday. <laughs> He's been very hawkish in that right. respect. Right. So you, you have all these Fed members saying we got to do something. We got to stop QE. We got to taper. And then you have Powell almost by himself. Right. It seems like he's kind of the lone voice of let's hold off. Let's wait for more data. We don't know exactly. Right. And now he's got a he has to balance Biden presidential pressure. And, and look, and, and look, let's, let's be fair. He's getting pressure from Janet Yellen, too. More so, yeah. more so. I think that's where the pressure from Biden is coming from. It's right. from Yellen, because not only is she the Treasury secretary, but she understands Powell's job probably more than Powell, to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> Well, and, and look, she's very, uh, you know, Janet Yellen, um, as Treasury Secretary, the reason she's put in that position is she's very pro-progressive policy. I mean, she's extremely, you know, left-leaning. She, she, she buys into the whole progressive modern monetary theory agenda of the administration, um, doesn't believe that debt is a problem as long as interest rates remain low. And, and that's always the caveat to this. As long as interest rates remain low and you don't have inflation, you know, massive amounts of debt are, are, aren't a problem. And maybe that's the case. But eventually you're going to have higher interest rates and higher inflation for whatever reason. And then it's a problem. And it's the kind of the hope is, well, I just hope it's somebody else's problem, not mine. Right. And the problem they're all facing is the people they are trying to help and protect the most, the poor, yeah. are the ones that are getting crushed the most by inflation. Right. Because they're the ones that spend the most of their money on food and gas, right? I know we don't count food and gas, but they're the <laughs> ones that spend right. more on food and gas. Well, no, it, look, and this is always, and this is kind of always the political game, right? And, and you brought, you made a good point, right? Powell just wants to get reelected. Congressmen and senators just want to get reelected. Presidents just right. want to get reelected. The the problem is, is that all these policies are great to get reelected with, but eventually it doesn't help those that it's meant to help. Because inflation, again, we've talked about this before. If I give everybody $1,000 a month this year, next year inflation will rise and that $1,000 will be as if I've never gotten it. 
um, my cost right. of living will go up. And so these policies sound great. It's like, oh, you know, we help the poor. Yeah, you'll help them for a year, but then what? And and the problem is, is and, and as you correctly state, the people that spend, the, the people that are taxed the most, you know, we, we talk about, let's go tax the rich. And when we talk about taxing the rich, you know, it's really that top 1%, one-tenth of 1%, that everybody's upset about because they've got billions upon billions of dollars. You know, if you're in the top 10% of the, of the earners in the economy, you've got four and a half million dollars in the bank, not a billion, not 5 billion. That's a very small percentage of people that have more than $10 million in the bank. I mean, it's a very, very small percentage of people. So, you know, the vast majority of people, 80% of, of America live just basically breaking even. They've got no money in the bank. This is what we talk about. The average person can't come up with $500 for, you know, an emergency. But these are the people. It doesn't matter whether you raise taxes on the rich. Great. Let's raise taxes on the rich. They're, these are the producers primarily in the economy. They're going to raise costs, inflation. And the people that actually wind up paying more in tax, as you stated correctly earlier, are the people in the bottom 50% because their whole cost of living goes up more than the tax rate. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they may right. have lower taxes, but their cost of living went up so much they were taxed out of their lifestyle. And that's what right. we and don't talk about. Right. And there's two things. If you have 10 million, you have a very sophisticated tax lawyer, tax accountant. Right. Mm -hmm. They're going to shield as much as they can. Yeah. Now, if the government says, OK, it doesn't matter. We're taking 50 percent of your wealth. OK, they take it. Let's pretend they don't move and they take it all. Yep. OK, we still have a massive problem. Sure. You may have. You may have chipped away a tiny bit, but we're running three to five trillion dollar deficits. Think about even if you're taking 50 percent of the wealth of people, take, take 100 percent. How much money you need to pay for one year? Take take 100 percent of the wealth, right? You it's won't not you, enough. It, you won't even put a dent in what we're spending. And then what are you going to do next year? Right. That's, and and that's what are you going to do for the economy when you put all these people that spend a lot of money out on yeah. their. And, and, and by the way, to your point, you know, when you have money say you've got 10 million or more, you have what's called mobility. And this is the one thing that people really don't understand. You know, if I'm Jeff Bezos or if I am Bill Gates and I've got a couple of billion dollars, right? This year in 2020 and, and 2021, we've had record numbers of people renouncing their U.S. citizenship. They're buying citizenship in countries like Cyprus, um, you know, New Zealand, other countries. They're going in and they're basically moving their citizenship to other countries where, where they're not being aggressively taxed or aggressively pursued under a threat of more taxation to protect their wealth. And they have, and that's what I'm saying, they have mobility. So if, great, if you really want to cause problems for yourself longer term, go after the wealthy. They'll take their toys and go home. <laughs> right, and they've been doing it for years, moving to Florida. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. The giant graveyard of America, Florida. <laughs> it's pretty, though. Be right back after the break. No going. We have a new band in house, if uh, you haven't heard. We had a comment on YouTube saying, what happened to our heavy metal music? Well, the problem is, is that you have to have music that you have a license to that Google won't basically and Facebook and all these other people won't basically block your video. And so um, we've now got a new band called the Bollinger Band and with new music. I'm going to see how long it is. takes Mike to get that joke. So <laughs> didn't take me long. <laughs> anyway, just kidding. 
Just kidding. Anyway. Somebody uh, said we ought to look for Fleetwood Mac D. <laughs> we can get there. <laughs> Stevie Nicks was supposed to come to Austin City Limits. So every year up in Austin, mm-hmm. they have the uh, uh, this big kind of music festival. South by Southwest. Yeah. yeah. And they have a big music. No, it's not South by Southwest. I'm going to think of it in a That's second. one of them. This is one of them, but it's, it's <laughs> not that one. Anyway, Stevie Nicks was supposed to perform, mm-hmm. and so my wife is all excited. She bought tickets for her, my daughter, my son. They were all going to go uh, to this to the. Uh, it's not Austin City Limits. I'm going to think of it. In Austin a second. City Limits. No, no, it's not. That's the place. Um, That's the name of the festival too. I was there like 15 years ago. It's not called that anymore. <laughs> 15 years later, Michael. <laughs> I'm going to think of it in a second. Anyway, it's the po- Smoldering Man. Uh, <laughs> So, anyway, she was supposed to come. She canceled her tour because really, yeah, because of the whole Delta virus mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she she canceled her tour. So my wife's like, "Well, I'm not going." She sold all her <laughs> sold her tickets. So, but, so my wife and I went to a show last week. Yeah, and it was actually nice. First show we've seen since COVID. Like a movie. And, what kind of show? It was Wilco. Okay. Uh, and they did require proof of vaccine or proof that you had a positive, a negative COVID test in the last, whatever, couple right. days. Right. Uh, the show, which is normally packed, wasn't packed. Uh, but it was really nice Yeah. to do normal things. Well, you know, it's interesting, <laughs> it's interesting too. Um, you know, if you, you know, AMC of course is, um, you know, been one of those meme stocks that has been kind of all over the board over, since really since the shutdown in COVID and, and, you know, over the weekend, um, Ryan Reynolds had a new movie come out called free, F- free man. Um, and it, it's interesting the the, the movie did Oak okay, actually did well, but you have to put that in context of how box openings were doing before the COVID shutdown. Right. And when you compare it to pre-COVID shutdown, it didn't really have that big of a, of a showing, right? And, and it's, it's one of those things is that people are going back. But if you go to the movie theater, it's not packed. I mean, it's, it's maybe half full at best. And... You know, and you're seeing this really reflected the revenues of GameStop. You know, they're very optimistic that they're going to be able to support this massive business. I'm sorry, I said GameStop, but AMC. They can support this this very massive brick and mortar intensive business with people not going back to the theaters in mass. And you know, the the value, and this is why we t- we've talked about the valuation of the company. You know, previously, it's just astronomical. But, you know, this is part of what we're seeing in this in this environment of, you know, kind of excess liquidity is investors chasing assets because there's really just too much money and not enough assets. And we're seeing that push into the most speculative of assets. And and this is and, and what's interesting now, and I've, I put a chart out this morning, um, if you take a look at secondary offerings, now, these are companies that are already public. And AMC is a good example of this. They did this as well. They're a public company. And when investors ran their stock price up to an insane level, they said, 
good idea. And they sold like 500 million more shares to the market. So they did a secondary offering. Um, so they sold more shares out into, into the, in other words, they, they diluted current shareholders by issuing more shares. And we're seeing a record number of companies right now looking at their stock price going, you know, this is a really good time to go raise some capital. And now here's the interesting thing. They're not doing anything with the capital. They're going out raising this capital at a record level, but take a look at corporate cash balances. Those are at record levels too. So they're raising capital and they're putting in cash. They're not going out buying companies, investing in production, increasing CapEx, hiring employees to a massive degree, raising wages. That's not real. That's not happening. It's all going into cash. They're going, we're going to go get the cash while the getting's good because what happens if we have another big downturn in the economy? They want to be prepared. And look, over and over again, we talk about productivity and the productivity of debt. And that's another great example. Mm -hmm. Apple's a great example. I mean, they, they do have some productive ability, but they just they are sitting on such a large amount of cash. And then they continually hit the market for more cash because it's so cheap. Right. Because they can reinvest it in the asset markets. Right. Because they can buy back shares. Mm -hmm. None of that is productive. No. And, and that's. And speaking That's of buybacks, right? And speaking of buybacks, um, it, it's been interesting just since uh, this recent sell-off. A big chunk of this rally that we've seen has been just an unleashing of banks, basically going out for buybacks. So, you right. know, one of the things that we saw in 2017 in particular, saw it again in 2019. Almost a hundred percent of the net buying of the market was driven by stock buybacks. And we're seeing that again now. A lot of this elevation in the markets, we've got a re basically we're approaching records in stock buybacks for this year of companies just buying back their own shares. Again, and, and again, people say, you know, there's nothing wrong with stock buybacks, right? That's, that's returning cash to shareholders. No, it's not. Right. It only returns cash to shareholders if you as a shareholder sell your shares. But you can do that at any day of the week in the open market. The only people that really benefit from a share buyback are people that were granted, they were given shares as part of their compensation package, and then they sell those shares back to the company. And that's why even the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, did a study, and they found out that the vast majority of people who benefit from share buybacks are not shareholders. It's the insiders right. of companies. Right. And, and someone, actually a reader, asked me a question the other day. It says, why does the market tend to just grind higher? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's up five points one day, seven, up three, maybe down a couple. But if you look at it, it tends to just move higher slowly. Like there's just a steady buyer, mm -hmm. not a big buyer, not 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 highly motivated, but just someone steady buying. Mm -hmm. And you kind of look around and you say, OK, well, most investors are all are all in, whether it's hedge funds, whether it's individuals. But what you have are two things. And one of them are stock buybacks. It's mm -hmm. companies coming in. And then the other thing are 401k plans and targeted plans where they're buying every time someone gets paid, yeah. they have to come in and buy a little bit more. So those are your buyers. Yeah. And, right? and, and, and that's and, what's. And the 401k plans are a small fraction of right. what's going on with buybacks. I mean, really, when you but, take a look at what the. When you take a look at net buying, it's buybacks. I mean, that's. But I think. Right. I think in a very illiquid market, mm -hmm. any buyer or any seller can have a much bigger effect than in a very liquid market. Right. And we're seeing that both with this grind higher, right, these 401k plans and these companies buying and buy their stock. And they're just 
pushing it higher. Mm-hmm. Who's selling? There's no sellers. There's no other buyers. So they're pushing it higher because there's no liquidity. And then you see it around options expiration dates. You see these jagged moves down 2% and then up 2% over the course of a week, month after month. Mm-hmm. It's because there's no liquidity. So that's fine. When it grinds higher and there's no liquidity, okay, we'll take it. But you better understand no liquidity can also be a big problem when people need liquidity. Well, and, and we talked about this, I think, on Monday, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great point to reiterate is that what we mean by lack of liquidity, and, and again, something we talked about before is that you know, we talk about cash on the sidelines. There is no such thing as cash on the sidelines because for every buyer, there's got to be a seller. So the net change in cash is always the same. Uh, Mike wrote a great article about this uh, previously, talking about it's the same as a as a football team. I can only have eleven players on the field, so if I if I want to pull a player off, I've got to put a player on. Um, so it never changes. But what makes the difference and why prices either go up or down is the the where that price exchange occurs. And in a very when we talk about an illiquid market. Um, you know, this is a, we're in a market where nobody wants to sell. So in order, so I want to buy some shares of Apple. Mike owns Apple. So in a, in a theoretical market of just two people, I would have to go to Mike and say, Mike, I want to buy your shares of Apple. And Mike says, okay, well, you're gonna have to buy them $5 higher than where they are now, because that's my, that's my number. I want to get to that number and I'll sell them to you. So I have to buy higher. The problem is that eventually, at some point, something will happen, some exogenous event, and everybody is going to want to sell their shares of Apple. The problem is, is there's no buyer at this current level. And this is the very definition of the greater fool. Right now, everybody expects there to be somebody else willing to buy at a higher price. I'm just going to hang on to my shares of Apple. I'll sell them higher later when I get there. The problem is, at some point, some event changes the markets. And everybody wants to sell their shares of Apple. The problem is the buyers are thirty, fifty, a hundred dollars lower than where the current price level is. And that's why in 2020, uh, during March, we saw these very big down days in the Dow, down four thousand points in the Dow, three thousand points in the Dow. That was because buyers are living a lot lower. There's an old saying in Wall Street: sellers live higher, buyers live lower. And right now, that gap between sellers and buyers is very large, and that's that lack of liquidity that Mike and I are talking about. And at some point, that gap opens up, and it's a free fall to the level of where buyers are. Mike, one two seconds. Game. Last comment. One big game of musical chairs, and you better keep an eye on the guy controlling the music. As a, uh, as a. Uh, Mr. Prince said for Citigroup, right? Got to keep dancing as long as the music's playing. Just don't forget to sit down when it stops. All right. (laughs) Got to wrap up the show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Michael Lewitz joining me. Be sure about our website. Our daily market commentary is out right now. So hit the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on our daily market commentary link. Make sure and subscribe. We'll send it to you at 730 every morning by email. So you'll get it. But great stuff in there today. A lot of stuff about what we're talking about here in our daily market comment. While you're there, send us your questions, comments, emails. Check out riapro.net, our subscription service. Tons of stuff at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. And Mike's new blog on strippers and fiscal policy. It's all there. It's a great read. See you tomorrow. It's a rich world. It's a rich world.